Hey everybody, it's Brennan, and uh, Patrick and I want to announce something very, very exciting before we get into today's episode. We would like to share with you Deadhead Review's very first Horror in Hollywood short story competition. Patrick here. It is theme-based, the horror in Hollywood. Horror stories set in and around the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Your story can take place at any period of Hollywood history, from the beginning days of silent black and white movies to the modern era of big Hollywood blockbusters. Be creative. Cross-genre is welcome. As far as the rules are concerned, we are looking for a maximum word count of 4,000 words, and we would like you to know that we are interested in standalone prose fiction stories. No TV, movie, play script treatments, or novel or novella extracts will be accepted. Brennan and I will be on the panel of judges alongside L. Turpit, Rich Gerlach, Cassie Daly, S.H. Cooper, and possibly more. The contest is open starting on September 15th, and it's going to run all the way to September 30th. More contact information for that can be found on the Deadhead site, which I'll give in just a minute. As far as prizes go, there's a lot of good stuff in store, including promotional packages, editing services, and you could even be a guest on this very show that you're about to listen to. For more information, go to deadheadreviews.com. And on that website, there is a content submissions page under that current open calls. Deadhead Space. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, and even though Brennan just did the ad with me, today this is just me. Um, I spoke with my guest, Jim Harberson. He is a writer. What we're specifically talking about is a graphic novel called Stay Alive. This was the third episode, chronologically episode three, that I ever recorded. Uh, That was back in March 16th, uh, 2020. This was actually um, four days before Brennan and I recorded our first episode together. That one was episode three, I believe, where it is our first horror classics. We talk about Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. So I hope that you all enjoy this. And uh, the sound quality, uh, I improved over time. So I hope that you forgive me. Enjoy. My guest today is the co-author of a new and exciting graphic novel, Stay Alive. Please welcome Jim Harberson. Hey, Jim. Hey, how are you? I'm pretty good. Um, so I was really excited when I first saw uh, Stay Alive being promoted online. I kind of had to get my hands on it, even though I'm very new to graphic novels. Um, I was just curious if you could tell us a little bit about the backstory of where the idea came from and um, your team that you've worked with on previous projects with. Sure. Well, uh, the idea, I don't know, it, it, it came out of the blue, I suppose. 
sometime in 2014, I was I was uh, spitballing with my co-author Mackie Wildwood. Um, we had written a couple of screenplays together by that point, and I was trying to I was we were trying to come up with an idea for a for a horror story, and lo and behold, I, I was thinking about I think this was a, one around the time social media were were starting to really wax ugly. You know, they were, yeah. they were, you know, disclosing people's worst tendencies online to use their anonymity or their distance or both to do things that they would never do in person. And right. so it, it occurred to me, what if you could weaponize this somehow and use it against people, you know, in a, in a real way, not just a, you know, not just psychological terror, but, but actual murder. And so we, we ran with it from there. And the Mackie is a longtime friend of mine. We, we went to high school together. And our artist, uh, Stephen Baskerville, is, lives in England. And we retained him for a project we worked on a few years ago called Death Cat. I sent you Death Cat. It's a yeah. short web comic. It's a horror comedy about based on a, a story that came out of Rhode Island. Apparently there was this palliative uh, care home cat that was supposed to be a supposed to be a, you know an emotional comfort animal and it started bombing onto people who were next to die eerily i guess the cats i guess that people dying emit pheromones or something and cats sense this and they they're attracted to it for whatever reason and so it was creepy right and and it's a fun thing at the same time so we we came up with a story idea. Well, what would happen if, if the staff at a nursing home discovered the same phenomenon and decided to start wagering on it? You know, <laughs> because I, I imagine if I imagine you have to have something of a sense of humor if you're working around death and decay all day, or else you're, you'll go mad if you Absolutely. if you can't cope with it. So you know, we we did that and we hired Stephen Baskerville to illustrate it and. When we resolved to do Stay Alive as a graphic novel, we thought he would be perfect for it. So, so Mackie Wildwood, my friend, that's a pseudonym for my friend who he works in finance and he tries to keep his regular day job life separate from his avocation as an author. So, okay. so we, we, you know, we started working on it in 2014 and then we hired the artist to start working on it in 2016 and gradually got it done last year. And we finished it last year and then shopped it to publishers and got picked up by Marcosia. Uh, Marcosia is a British publisher and we're quite delighted with them and uh, very humbled that they chose us and grateful that they did. And, you know, the, it's been, it's been well received. And we're, we're quite pleased with that. We're, we're glad that, you know, it's obviously not a story for everybody. It has some extreme <laughs> content. Yep. But, you know, at the same time, I, I think that the, the extreme content is rendered in such a way as you might see on Rick and Morty or Mr. Pickles on Adult Swim. <laughs> um, and one, of, one of my friends was telling me that, that, you know, she sees it as the kind of violence sort of that you might see in a video game like Fortnite. You know, she, it doesn't bother her that her kids play Fortnite because the violence is, 
is stylized and, and absurd. It's not intended to be exploitative or or graphic or appealing to the prurient interest. To borrow an old to borrow an old obscenities standard chestnut. Uh, so. So yeah, so we're we're quite pleased with with how it's doing, and of course we're so happy that you enjoyed it. And thank you again for that wonderful review. Oh, absolutely. I um in my close, well, I can't say close now, but my circle of friends in the horror community, I've seen everyone that's read it likes it. Um, I think, like you said, it's not for everybody. Only for the fact that. Some people would take it at a surface level, but um, I think you just made it pretty clear that the reason why you did it was for kind of explaining how society is with technology. And uh, I, I'm 31, so I, I feel like I'm the last generation to witness the evolution of social media and beyond that, the evolution of the Internet. Um, I can remember a time when I played video games without any access to the Internet. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, Internet access is, yeah, I grew up playing video games. There was no such thing as the Internet. You just, <laughs> you know, even even when I was, even when I played video games, like, say, in my 20s, you know, it was uh, it was on a PlayStation, you know, and yeah. it was a it was just a disc and you, you weren't linked to the Internet. It was all self-contained. And now you're right. It's uh, if you're not online, you you know, unless you have a game that's self-contained, you're you're. You know, you're doing something wrong, or not wrong, but you're sort of, I think you're sort of, possibly, you risk being seen as being behind the times, because graphic novels, graphic novels, I'm sorry, video games have become much more social. Social interaction is is often important, unless you're playing a game that's designed as a one-player adventure quest, like The Last of Us, say, or Uncharted, Mm. um, you know, or the the campaign mode in Call of Duty. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of video games, stay alive. If this was a video game, I would love it due to the cartoonishly extreme gore in it. Um, Like, there's this one example. First one that caught my eye is pretty early on. I'm flipping through the pages right now. Um, It's it's a panel where it's a 180-degree panel, I don't know if that's the proper term, but it's it's the main killer ripping off a uh, hospital employee's arms and just whacking the shit out of that employee with their own arms as they die and bleed to death. Yes. And then yes. it cuts it cuts to uh, another guy getting torn apart. Was it beheaded by a, a propeller, a helicopter propeller? Yeah. <laughs> the Craft, the serial killer. Uh, he, he sprung from the insane asylum where he's being kept. Yeah. Uh, and he, as he's as he's leaving with the with the orderly who who's been paid off to help him escape, uh, a nurse confronts them and and points out the irregularity of his being out of his cell. And so he grabs the nurse's arms and rips them off and bludgeons the nurse to death. And then and then once they're on the the roof maybe to cover his tracks, maybe just because he's, you know, a psychopath who's, you know, sort of buzzing on being able to kill people again. He just grabs the orderly and uh, tosses him into the, the helicopter blades, you know? So I guess that check doesn't have to, doesn't have to clear, right? 
So, and, you know, uh, yeah. So, yeah, he just, um, you know, it, he just, I, I thought I'd have fun with the, you know, the absurdity of the, the kills you see in horror film franchises like Halloween or more specifically, perhaps Friday the 13th and, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Where, you know, in the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, Freddy becomes this cartoon of his original self in which he, he, people cheer him on as he comes up with more and more elaborate ways of, of killing people. And it's so over the top that, you know, it, it, it's hard to be disturbed by it in one sense because it's, it's so unreal. I mean, it's still disturbing if you look at at it on one level because it's he's just dispatching these innocent teenagers and they may be obnoxious and annoying characters, but that doesn't mean they deserve to be slaughtered. Right. Um, and the same with the victims in the Friday Thirteenth movie, though that that is far less baroque. It's just new ways of of putting farm and garden in, implements to uh, into people. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, you know, Halloween is, I guess if, if you were to, if you were to award medals for it, it would be the gold medal to Freddie, the silver to Jason and the bronze to Michael Myers in terms of the <laughs> inventiveness and playfulness of their, of their murder sprees. And okay. so I was thinking, you know, how do we make this sort of fun as a nod, as a wink and a nod to the, the tradition of serial killers murdering people in absurd and over the top ways and you know it 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 fortifies the unreality of everything and, and makes it more tolerable accordingly. So just like I said in, in Rick and Morty, for example, or Mr. Pickles. <laughs> those those are good examples. Um, I totally get it, and I agree. So where did Kenyon Craft come from? Did he uh, was he inspired by any actual serial killer? No, I I, I was just thinking if you know what would a I wanted to create a character. Um, you know, he's the he's the real locus of the horror aspect of Stay Alive, and so I wanted him to be my my favorite horror movie growing up was Halloween Two, the original Halloween Two from 1981, mm. and that movie just blew my mind because it took it took a place uh, a hospital which is supposed to be a sanctuary of healing and safety and turns it into a a slaughterhouse. Absolutely. And it was creepy. It was it was masterfully executed in that you know Michael just quietly eradicates everyone and all the the staff members, and then pursues Jamie, Woody Curtis through the you know through the 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 sort of grotesque tableau he's created in the hospital, and. So I, I was inspired by that for the, the, the final chapter or the third act of Stay Alive, where where Kraft pursues Jane Morgan through the the FBI offices, which are littered with the the dead, you know. Mm. So it's it's like a journey through hell or something. And so one of the things that's really scary about Michael Myers is he is utterly without emotional affect, by and large. I mean, occasionally one of his victims or would-be victims will say Michael and he'll sort of stop and suddenly there's a flash of his humanity, but he quickly recovers and re- returns to form. And I wanted Kenyon Craft to be like that, to be 
relentless and you know sort of effortless in his in his uh killing but not a cartoon or supernatural i mean michael michael myers is sort of supernatural in his ability to survive and he never says anything uh i at least wanted kenyon craft to be to understand where kenyon craft's animus towards jane came from i mean clearly he was a damaged and troubled individual and jane's callous treatment of him kind of set him off and you know it it it, it contributed to to her character arc as well you see jane as this careless, careless, callous person who needs to be redeemed through the, through the horrific, horrific vortex of, of the events in Stay Alive. Absolutely. Um, well said. And I can't really make a current modern day cause I don't pay attention to pop references nowadays for the most part. But if I were relating Jane to a popular female pop, uh, like the biggest pop icon back when I was growing up, I'd say she reminds me of Britney Spears. Just solely, <laughs> solely on the fact that they're they're both pretty women. They're both on top of their game. They're world. They're well known throughout the world, and then they kind of hit this plateau, and they both do something a little nutty. So that was, I mean, the idea the the Hollywood starlet who who breaks bad to borrow a phrase is sort of an old and sad story. And, and it's a trope almost. And, and so we were thinking, well, how, how could we have fun with that? Because that's where the idea came from. Well, you know, if, if we were to do stay alive, just as a, you know, from a point of view of a victim, you know, first of all, most of the victims, the, the victims prior to Jane are not desirable as a lead character. They are all guilty of terrible things. And moreover, if you were simply to do a story wherein someone is being pursued by you kill uh, a character you don't you already don't like, it's not that interesting, which is why I wanted to, you know, change it up with the idea of the 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 main character exploiting her own calamity for profit uh, so that she can sort of make good on or find a silver lining in her unfortunate circumstances Mm. and you know i thought i thought that that allowed you know a a much more robust story and more social commentary other than just what would essentially become kind of a uh you know uh, a, a story that's been told many many times and very well of a person who's you know on the run being pursued by you know killer or killers you know, I, I thought that 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 story has been done really well. Like I said, and I, I thought of I didn't want to exactly tell that story. I wanted to tell a different story. I, I liked it. I empathize with Jane Morgan. Um, I thought she was in the beginning when it's like you know this the cliche starlet thing. Like you played you played a lot of cliche things very nicely. Um, like with Jane Morgan being just your typical, at first she seems like a typical uh, character, and then you start to really empathize for her. Um, and over time, she becomes this kick-ass character, and I really like that. Thank you. Yeah, and that was the, that was the hope. We wanted to take you from despising her to rooting for her. It works. And you know, to. to <laughs> basically to change the moral polarity if i can use that as a metaphor of the 
of the story so that you go from sort of rooting for you killed or rooting for Jane. Mm. Okay. And another thing, um, in the third act, when you have a bunch of uh, panels where it's showing different parts of the world where there's people rooting for, um, I think it was Knox in the beginning. And then you, yeah. So you see like an obese American family, you see frat boys. And then over time you start to see them shift gears from, uh, not liking her to being Team Jane. I thought that was good social commentary. Like I, I thought it was pretty. It's in your your social commentary is really in your face, and it does it well. And that's why I don't know if you guys do, but that's why I cl- classified it as a uh, splatterpunk story. You used um ex- you used horror as your tool for social commentary to make your your point on. Right. You know how how society is with technology. How we're all quick to just kind of condemn people. Um, there are complicated stories, but we try to. I think that a lot of people kind of just see things as black and white, and it's it's really never ever black and white. Right. Two of my favorite films. Uh, the the two of the films that really helped. Well, there are three films that really helped me, inspired me to create this. The first was The Running Man, which came out in 1987, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. It's based on a, a Stephen King novel. Right. And it's about, it's set in this future dystopian America in which uh, a despotic government has taken over and the, uh, the biggest television show in America is called The Running Man, in which social enemies enemies of the state are put through this gauntlet and hunted by these celebrity gladiators and murdered on a live television and the same year the original robocop came out uh and that was co-authored and i think directed by ed newmeyer who also wrote my second my my third movie which is the adaptation of starship troopers Oh yes, the original, the original in 1997. Yeah, and all three of these movies focus on the commodification of of human suffering. RoboCop, of course, is about a Detroit police officer who's killed in the line of duty and turned into a cyborg, and is treated like company property. He's OCP property, even though he's still a human being. He still has human emotions. And a free will, he's treated, you know, he's treated like uh, like property. He can be destroyed. With he has fewer rights than uh, he has fewer rights in some ways than a public toilet has. And in Starship Troopers, Starship Troopers is about, and it's based on the Robert Heinlein novel. And it's the premise is that this intelligent insect alien species attacks Earth, and so Earth sends. Starship Troopers, colonial, or not colonial, but space marines after them to destroy them. And the the focus is on human beings seeing themselves not as individuals, but as a species that is trying to wipe out a species that's trying to wipe them out. And mm-hmm. it's, it's in, in all three stories, the, the abdication, or not abdication, but the erasure of human dignity and the, the destruction of the considerations of individual rights 
are central to what is truly horrific about what's going on. And so that's what modern social media can easily enable. People feel empowered to, you see it all the time. People feel empowered to say terrible, terrible things about other people. Over nothing. Like I, Yes, exactly. It's it's everybody goes nuclear. Everybody's, you know, sort of caught up in hyperbole all the time. It's it's all or nothing. There's no nuance. There's no middle ground. It's just kill, 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 destroy, destroy, destroy. And, you know, it it really it reminds me of Immanuel Kant's injunction. I think it's from the prologue to the metaphysics of morals. Um. Immanuel Kant is a very famous philosopher, and he he more or less devised the architecture of, of modern secular morality in the West. And he had this comment, I think it was in the prologue of Metaphysics and Morals, and uh, my professor, when I studied it, kept coming back to this because it was as a refrain, because it, it really shows that even Kant realized that you could only do so much with people being people. It's out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing can ever be made. And you know, Kant, I think Kant was the son of a pietist preacher. Mm. And so he had this, he was, he was raised with this concept of original sin in people that, you know, no matter how progressive you try to be, how well-educated people are, or how well-intentioned, there's a rottenness in people that inevitably, you know, exposes itself. And, you know, you just, the idea that you can sort of eradicate it from people um, is probably the only thing that's more terrifying than the things that it, it can be responsible for. So yeah, that know. is that is real interesting um, because I I don't feel I, I I like history so I like to and I particularly love uh, the learn about you know Roman Empire or colonization of America those are areas where I really enjoy and. Um, even going further back, you know, we o- we always have the same sort of core about us where we're our, we kind of are still, you know, monkeys just with smarter. We have a smarter, more complex uh, way of thinking. Yes. I don't think it right, ever changes. It, we just get better toys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, people are ca- people are capable of terrific acts of of uh, grace and other centeredness. People are capable of moral heroism, but at the same time, they're also capable of, of utterly terrible things. And so, and it's, you know, it's, it's this classic, it's the human condition to try and reconcile these urges. And in social media, we see, you know, people are just, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like a safety valve that allows people to, to say terrible things, things they have to repress in their normal lives. You know, I, I used to I used to make the argument, you're familiar with Howard Stern, right? Yeah. Well, Howard Stern was really being, you know, over the top and edgy back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I used to think of him as kind of a safety valve for popular culture. Like, he could, like other comedians, he could say things other people were thinking but weren't allowed to say, <laughs> right? Yeah. And now that opportunity in some ways has been has been given to people on social media though the ability of people to have if, if, if people become sufficiently notorious or well known they can't get away with it anymore but you know average 
people who are not particularly well known uh, can still, you know, say terrible things on social media. And I'm not sure that they pay much of a price for it most of the time because people aren't paying attention. And, you know, just it's easier always to escalate things when there are no real stakes than it is if you're in a situation where it might actually descend into violence. Sure. And isn't that funny that Howard Stern was considered the taboo person of the day, but nowadays he's just, it's not, it's nothing compared to what you can be offended by today. Yes. And that's the other thing that's really funny is that people now take offense at things that I think people used to be much more calloused. And now people are much more prone to take offense at things that perhaps they, they wouldn't necessarily take offense at anymore. So, and I think that that, that kind of fuels it. There's a, you know, there's an irrepressible narcissism that fuels social media. And, you know, I think it, it adds to the toxicity. And that's why, you know, people feel like if everything is personal, then they have to defend their, their personal integrity all the time because they feel like it's under assault. And so, you know, you have, you know, it, it's like the idea of democracy in some ways, you know, when people are responsible for writing the law or voting for certain things, and it's not dictated to them by a king or something, then I think they're more inclined to take it personally. You know, and especially in America where people think that, you know, they see a problem and they think it should be resolved, there ought to be a law, you know. Mm. And there's this sort of dictatorial fascistic impulse in the American character to want to outlaw things and punish people severely for doing things that they disapprove of. And, um, you know, H.L. Mencken, the, the famous writer for the Baltimore Sun, the social commentator, talked about this. He has a, a famous quote about how, you know, bettering your fellow man is the American disease and, and that you will, you will make people better by force if necessary, right? Mm. And, you know, so we have that, you know, Something that becomes well, something that's well intentioned starts out being well intentioned, but turns into a kind of toxic, uh, dictatorial demand that you know people behave in a certain way, um, or else we chuck you in jail. You know, Americans have a there's a there's a famous quote uh, by uh, De Tocqueville. It might be from Democracy in America, but he said that which was written in the the early 19th century, I think in the 1830s. And he, he came to America and wrote the, the famous treatise about American culture and mores. And he said that in Europe, if you're, if you're a, a fugitive from justice, people view you with sympathy. In America, if you're a fugitive from justice, people want to join into the mob that's hunting the fugitive, right? Mm. So it's like that wonderful Simpsons episode. I think it's the episode where the, the town gets together to burn down the local the local house of prostitution and they're, they're converging on it with pitchforks and torches. And one of the characters said, there's no justice quite like mob justice. So, pretty true. <laughs> to today's that's, standards. That's what we see. We see people galvanized by a sense of moral righteousness and it, it excuses terrible things. You know, there's a wonderful quote. I think I'm getting it right from Nietzsche said, be beware when you go hunting monsters that you don't yourself become a monster, you know, something to that effect. And 
I think what he meant when he said that was that if you're sufficiently galvanized by a sense of moral righteousness, you may you may dispatch with the things that would otherwise make you a moral person or give you pause because you're so goal oriented that, you know, you're willing to do anything to succeed. Right. Yeah. That's uh that's a scary truth right there. <laughs> Have you, has this uh, novel, has it um gotten any backlash at all for yeah, any of the graphic brutality in it? Uh, not that I've heard. I mean, I'm sure that there, there are people who re- have read it and and been put off by it. But fortunately, no one has has uh, confronted me or that I know have written anything to say that this is horrible and you know, pick your pick your uh, your adjective. So I think I'd like to think that if people give it a fair read, they'll see it for what it is and not as some. Um, celebration of excess but more of a more of a it uses it uses um extreme content as a way of commenting on human society particularly american society as filtered through social media so i took it um and our willingness to to monetize just about any kind of human suffering you know as long as it as long as it's you know, being as long as it's being had by consenting adults. So, yeah. Um, so I'm real curious. I don't know a whole lot about your background. Um, I what I did see is that like you went to Cornell, Yale, and uh, University of Pennsylvania. I was curious what you went to school for at any of those schools, and if it had anything to do that would end up influencing you or kind of having a role in you as a uh, writer. Yes, I, I, I was a classics and English major at Cornell. Okay. Classics is ancient Greek and Roman literature and history and philosophy. And I went to Yale Divinity School and concentrated in historical theology, which is the history of Christian thought. And then after that, went to law school, the University of Pennsylvania. And I worked, I would say that being well-schooled in Western thought and philosophy and having a really good background in, in debate and critical thinking about issues, you know, learning to think dispassionately about things that are inherently polarizing was very, uh, was a gift and very useful. In fact, when I was in Cornell, I took the final class taught, ever taught by Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer. Oh, yeah. It was a critical thinking seminar. And he he made us, one of the things he made us do was write a paper about a topic that was really polarizing, really controversial, such as abortion or affirmative action or, you know, any other political topic that, that really got people energized. And that what you had to do was was pair off with someone in the class who had an opposite view of the topic, or at least was willing to take the opposite view that you had, and then to write a paper together. So you had to put aside your, you know, deeply held beliefs and, you know, come to some kind of agreement in, in the form of a paper. And I thought that that was an extraordinarily useful exercise. 
And law school teaches you to do that too, if it if it's functioning correctly. Um, it teaches you, which is something that's a little bit of a lost art, unfortunately, the ability to approach things no matter how much they may affect you emotionally and to try and discern, you know, why do people think this way? And, you know, how can I understand them better? You know, because if you can understand people, you can at least try to communicate with them. And communication and debate, I mean, that is civilization. Yeah. If we're not doing that, we're, we're, we're pillaging and destroying, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I would say that after that, I, in the course of my legal career, I ended up doing a lot of criminal defense work and civil rights litigation. And I saw the, I saw often the systematic dehumanization of, of people, clients, especially in the criminal defense arena. And it, it was ter- it was terribly frightening. I like to say, you know, I have friends who say, how can you think these terrible things that you write about? And as far as I'm concerned, nothing that I write about is anywhere near as terrifying or disturbing as the things I've seen in the real world. So, you know, I, I just, um, you know, I, I, I had a client once who, who um, almost died in, in police custody in, in jail because, uh, because the, the health services were inadequate. And he, he was bitten by a brown recluse spider. He developed a staph infection. I mean, the, all of this was documented. He almost died, you know, and it, it was horrifying. It just the, 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 it's not in all places, but in many places in this country, I think that if you're a criminal convict or a defendant, a lot of people just write you off as not being worthwhile anymore. Yeah, I have a I have a theory sometimes that, you know, there's this, you know, America was founded by Puritans, some of whom, if I'm not mistaken, have very strong beliefs in predestination that God had already determined who was damned and who was elect. Hmm. And so I think that, you know, people, people that's still running around in our, if, if America has a subconscious, a cultural subconscious, that's still running around in the subconscious or constitutive of it and so i think that people assume that well if if god has already written you off then why can't we right and god has obviously already written you off because look at you you, you're a terrible criminal and you're in jail and your life is horrible and so obviously you're not elect right right and that's kind of a shame how, uh, in my opinion, that people misconstrued good ideas, good ideas for religion, which would be just, without getting into detail, I think it should just basically be a good person and don't be a judgmental prick. Um, I know, for example, prostitutes, you know, if you're that or porn star or something along those lines. A lot of people will just treat you like a second citizen. And I know for a fact in some areas, without saying where, that cops really don't give a shit about prostitutes. And I don't think that's right. And it is pretty sickening. And uh, anyone that reads Stay Alive or other works that you've done that uh, exploit that, I'd really stop and reflect on what's going on in front of them like you're you're just making social commentary that's what good authors do that's what good musicians that's what good artists do yeah i agree 
And I, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to paint with a really broad brush. I mean, there are plenty I've dealt, I worked with plenty of police officers and law enforcement people who were righteous. You know, they were good people sure. and they were trying to do a very hard job. But the system and the, the cultural attitudes that I sometimes saw, you know, towards people who, who um, were my clients, I, I think were appalling. And I think that for some people, that is a, a decision they make. They just decide that, you know, people who do certain things are irredeemable and we can, you know, if, if they would simply die so they could save us money, all the better. But I think some people just absorb prejudices like any other prejudice, and they never really think about it until they're given pause to think about it. So, and it's it's a very revealing thing to, to you know, represent, to be real with people who are very different from you, and to understand life from their perspective, and to, to understand that maybe they, you know, especially if they were born without privileges that many people in this country enjoy. Mm. And, you know, it's an education, you know, when I was at Yale, there were, there were all manner of homeless people throughout the campus begging for change or cigarettes or whatever. And it was, it was just part of your experience there because New Haven is, it was really depressed when I was there. I don't, I think it's maybe a little better, but it's still fairly depressed. And it was an education in and of itself because you had this, you know, world-class, institution with a multi-billion dollar endowment filled with privileged kids and at the same time you have grotesque poverty side by side with it so it's you know it's an interesting juxtaposition to say the least absolutely uh my wife has opened my eyes to a lot of things she's a social worker and she used to work in lake city and she would help uh veterans um that would there'd be a row of homes and it would be a program where it would help them to sort of recircuit the way they think about jobs, money. It would help them to become um, self-independent. Uh, um, right. And, I mean, if I didn't know they were homeless, I wouldn't – that's the crazy thing. Like, you stop and think, oh, a homeless person looks like this, for example. And no, they don't. There's many looks to everything, and – she opened my eyes in the sense where, like, if you get a you get a stop and think, like people in prison, like you brought up earlier, they are treated once they're out, probably pretty bad too. And uh, it, it's strange to think that we can be so quick to judge. Which brings me back to my earlier um, point of the internet and social media. I think that that kind of is why we are the way we are, the way we have all these judgmental thoughts. And uh, I think you touched on that, too. We, we just use it as a tool. And it's scary because any one of us could do it. Right. And the other thing is, is that the because what's politically acceptable is is dynamic, you know, you can be on the on the side of the angels one day and uh, the target of the righteous mob the next. So it, it, it's really a it's really a terrifying uh, phenomenon, you know, and uh, it, it, it's funny because we seem to have lost our capacity for mercy mm. in some ways as a society. I mean, I wouldn't say completely. I'm sure that, you know, most Americans are able to forgive one another, but, it, you know, we, we have this kind of 
we, we have this intolerance for any kind of error and this desire to see destroyed often people who fall into error. It's, you know, it, it's like, uh, like the Inquisition during the Middle Ages. Yeah. You know, if you ever want to read a really scary book, there's a, there's a, a compilation of original sources in translation by uh, Alan Charles Coors. Is it Alan Charles or Charles Allen? Coors and Edmund Peters. They're scholars of the Enlightenment at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's a, it's a book about witchcraft and the oppression of witches from 700 to 1400 AD. And you just read about the, the, Witchcraft, the, the witchcraft hunting hysteria that convulsed Europe over many centuries and all the people who were put to death and tortured in the name of, you know, driving out the devil and public order and God's righteousness. And, and it, like I said, it's much more frightening than anything I could write. There was a town, I think, in Germany in which, uh, you know, everyone ended up accusing everybody else. Not completely, but that witchcraft accusations proliferated, and somebody figured out that that there are too many people making too much money off of this because everyone participating in the in the court system or the 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 civic machinery of the trial and judgment and execution of witches got paid, and as soon as they started reducing the fees of the people who participated in that system, the number of witchcraft accusations fell off. So it's kind of like the, the theory some historians advanced about the Salem witchcraft trials. Uh, I think it was back in the 1970s that they did a study and they found that a lot of the people accusing their neighbors had property disputes with their neighbors because <laughs> they had adjoining properties. So they used the they used the fear of witches to, you know, to win their win their beefs in, in the most horrific way possible. That's terrifying. So, have you, have you yeah. ever been to the uh, Salem Witch Trial Museum? It's uh, in Salem, Mass. No, I, I should have. I went to high school in Massachusetts, but I have not. Where'd you go? I went to Deerfield Academy. Okay, I'm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but I live in. So that's in. Uh, that's in North Massachusetts, isn't it? The northern part. Western. It's about an hour and a half from Boston. Yeah, it's in Western Mass. It's near oh, okay. Springfield. It's about a half hour from Springfield. Wow. Yeah, I'm way off. So I don't know that area very well, but I'm from Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and it's just uh, okay. pretty much directly in between Boston and Providence. Um, I've been to Salem three times during <laughs> October, and it's pretty great. I brought my wife there. We went to that museum. It's really uh, interesting. It's pretty terrifying what the women went through, uh, and one guy in particular. And um, Cotton Mather, he, if it wasn't for him, I don't think we know a whole lot about what happened because he's pretty much the one that recorded everything. And, and that guy is a prolific writer. I think he wrote over... 300 books or something. Yeah, yeah. And um, I know that he has a connection with Benjamin Franklin, too, which is real interesting. It was his book. I don't remember the one, but a book that he wrote uh, inspired Benjamin Franklin um, to pretty much be the person he was. And it's arguable that he's Franklin's like the biggest influence in how America is nowadays. So uh, I think Cotton Mathers is someone that 
is worth studying if someone's interested in this field. Yeah, I think I read that he was denied the presidency of Harvard University or Harvard College at the time because of his of his role in the Salem witchcraft trials. No kidding. There was a there was a backlash after people sobered up and realized how horrible the things that they had done were, and I think they needed a scapegoat. Every, they always need a scapegoat, right? So, always. you know, the mob turns the mob turns on its you know on its leader eventually, and he was one of the leaders. So, you know, it's uh, sorry. Yeah, it's, no, but whenever you whenever you harness. Uh, irrational emotional energy. You have to be careful. It's like having, you know, the the old the old cliche, the tiger by the tail. You never really control it, right? You just um, you just are able to control it for a little while, but eventually you lose control of it because it's too volatile and dynamic to be disciplined for too long. The One Ring, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it, I agree. It's a scary thing. Have you actually seen the show, Salem? Uh, no, I have not. It just goes over. I haven't seen it. I think they canceled it after the third season. I, I watched it when it came out. Um, it's pretty neat. Um, it just, it's absolutely fiction. Uh, Cotton Mathers is the main character. But the Puritans, I'm so glad I did not live back then because I'm pretty sure I would die pretty quickly with them. Yeah, well, I, I remember reading a book by a sociologist. There was this famous sociologist at Harvard named Daniel Bell, and he wrote a book back in the 70s that's really excellent called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. And in the preface, he talked about how the Puritans – one of the reasons the Puritans were so busybodied, why they were so concerned about the sins of their neighbors, was that they had a, a much more tribalistic view of themselves in the eyes of God, much more like the Hebrew scriptures, that they were like the nation of Israel, and the sins of the nation would be, the, 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 the punishment for the sins of the nation would be visited on everyone, not the individual transgressors. So they had a they had a far less individualistic conception of Christianity mm. than was possible, and so they accordingly tried very hard to prevent other members of the community from doing things that would end up having everyone punished by an angry God. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not part of that clique. Uh, cliche, right? Uh, and, and click. So, <laughs> And so, yeah, so, the, 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 you know, the idea of individual responsibility is is erased. And so you have a moral imperative, a good reason, if not a moral imperative, to, you know, be up in your neighbor's business because your neighbor's business may end up getting you, you know, lashed by God. Which kind of brings us back to the whole social media thing where we've never grown up. We just have nicer toys. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people are the other thing is, is that we live in an age that because we prize individuality, it's ironic. I mean, you know, it's a good thing we prize individuality because individuality is how people experience reality. And when right. you 
get rid of individual rights, inevitably terrible things happen. Mm-hmm. But when people are so focused on their on their issues that they can't see other people's they can't see other people's needs or, or wants as being just as important sometimes, and they become so narcissistic that they're imprisoned by themselves, then you know, you get an equally terrible well not equally, but you can get terrible outcomes too. You get people who just can't see past their own their own concerns. And society starts to fall apart. And they, no, like I said, there's no forgiveness because because uh, everybody there's a there's a very famous law review article written by a, a law professor at Yale named Arthur Allen Leff came out in 1977, I think, or 79, called Unspeakable Ethics, uh, Unnatural Law. And it's wonderful. And he talks about the fact that the modern condition renders every person a god unto himself, or a godlet, as he says. And, you know, therefore, nobody really has the right to tell anybody what to do. I mean, we have society because we have mutual interests that are best served by cooperative action. But at the end of the day, People who see themselves as gods see any affront to their interests or their reputation or respectability as an affront to God, right? Mm. So, and, and, you know, God shall not be mocked, right? Right. So that's why Jane in Stay Alive, you know, her, her greatest moment, her most important inflection point is when she, you know, discovers her humility and says, okay, you know, enough of this. Just take me. Don't kill anyone else. That's a turning point. <laughs> Is um, are, are there any books? Are you, first off, do you read often? I I do. Um, I I try to read a lot. I I haven't read as much recently because I've been working on other things. But yeah, I I read a lot. So what books do you tend to read? Uh, is it one genre or? Is it just a, a slew of diversity? I read lots of stuff. I read a lot of philosophy. Um, I read a lot of comic books. And I like to read... Uh, I read a lot of last year or... Yeah, it was last year I, I went on a binge of science fiction. I think I read about 19 science fiction books in a row as a kind of, you know, immersion in the genre because I hadn't read a lot of science fiction for a while. Do you like uh, old stuff like Jules or uh, Jules Verne or are you into more modern uh, contemporary science fiction? I prefer more contemporary, sort of mid-century, mid-20th century onward. Ray so, Bradbury, are you a fan of him? Yes. Yes, definitely. He's great. In fact, I pick, I came up in, you know, I, one of the other, seminal influences on me was were the EC comics of the 1950s. Yeah. Tales from the Crypt, Weird Science, all those. And yeah. he actually had many stories adapted in, in the horror and science fiction comics. Weird uh, Tales, too, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, I loved... One of the things I liked about EC was that even though they had different styles of title, they, were, they always... They tended outside of the war titles to have O. Henry endings, and there was always this sort of ghoulish sense of humor that informed almost everything they were doing, or this, you know, sense of of a, a sort of a 
a sad sense of irony about the world that that people would people ever escape their their own tragic flaws you know it, it was great i remember there was this they had this uh in the horror comics they would do these retellings of famous fairy tales mm-hmm. uh, with an ec twist and the one they did for hansel and gretel was great because in the end hansel and gretel get chucked into the oven by the witch and <laughs> i didn't one, know that in the last panel the witch is saying were you expecting hansel and gretel to escape come <laughs> on this is an ec magazine that's not gonna happen you know just breaking the fourth wall was fantastic you know and it was totally over the top. And yes, it's horrible, but at the same time, you can't help but chuckle because, you know, they're tweaking your expectations. For, so. for me, uh, my EC Comics is Creepshow. I, when I, dis- I forget when I discovered the first one, which quickly I f- discovered the second one. Um, I haven't seen the show yet. I never bothered to watch the third one because I don't think it's the original trio. You know, Tom Savini, George Romero, obviously not George Romero, and uh, Stephen King. But as soon as I found the first two, I was in love. And I think they're very, they're they're like cousins with the Tales of the Crypt. And oh yeah, Stephen King. I think Dance Macabre says that the EC Comics were also instrumental in his in his creative formation, you know. I haven't read that and, in years. I, f- I forgot that, that part. Yeah. The, I, I actually, my favorite is the, they, there was a comic book adaptation of the original Creep Show with art by Bernie Wrightson. That's just fantastic, you know. Um, I think I read that before I saw, I'm pretty sure I read that. I, yeah, I read that before I ever saw the movie. And it's 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 just like an EC comic. They have a, a weird narrator and five stories um with twist endings and you know it's you know the the irony was what made so many of the ec stories so so impactful and and amazing you know uh, um some you, you try to avoid some terrible thing it's like oedipus rex you you you, you know that there's some existential threat to you and you end up becoming that threat yourself, notwithstanding <laughs> everything you try to do to prevent the threat. Right. You know. Do you have a favorite uh, favorite short in either Crypt uh, Crypt Show one or two? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Or favorites? Do you have a few? The first Creep Show, the uh, the crate story about the uh, werewolf crate. Yeah, that was one of mine too. I was going to go with that too. Hal Holbrook uses it to dispatch his 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 terrible wife. You know, his yeah. his wife uses it. <laughs> yeah, that that's my favorite. So I um, also I also liked. Uh, is it in the first one where actually you know I'm looking it up right now online. It is. So I'm thinking of the one it's titled "They're Creeping Up on You," uh, where it's that rich asshole in the hotel. <laughs> yeah, E.T. Marshall lives in this clean space. Yeah, yeah. He ends up being eaten from within by cockroaches. Yeah, that was pretty cool, and I I, per, I particularly love the ending where all the cockroaches just climb out of him in every orifice. Yeah, and it's like what's the worst possible thing that could happen to you if you were a clean freak? And it's that you know, and it's the metaphor is is that he's so he's so clean on the outside, but he's so rotten on the inside. <laughs> you know, the, the supernatural impact is that his personal rottenness 
you know, eclipses any of his, ex, you know, exterior cleanliness or righteousness or whatever. So, you know, he, he has this, the wife of one of his former employees calls to say that her husband committed suicide after he fired the guy. And, and his response is, you know, well, I, you know, I did the world a favor and, or he did the world a favor by killing himself or something like that, something terrible, you know, and, uh, you know, so the, the metaphorical truth of his character um, eventually destroys him. It's very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. I, I um, actually like the first one more than Creepshow 2. And um, you said earlier you're a filmmaker as well, I believe. I'm not a filmmaker. I've written a lot of screenplays. but I'm Oh, okay. A Just, you're a screenwriter. Yes. Um. I actually, I'm not familiar with which one, what you've written as far as that goes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I haven't had any screenplays developed, so that's why okay. I'm not familiar with them. Okay. I couldn't find anything, so that makes sense. I'm working. But, yeah. I, I you know, I, I actually started out wanting to be a graphic novelist, and I went into screenplay writing. And I, I see, you know, because a graphic novel in some ways is, is like a movie. You know, it's, 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 it should be, in my opinion, mostly visual. You should convey most of the information visually, just like you do in a, in a movie or when you're writing a screenplay. And, you know, ideally, it, it's a, like I said, it's a visual experience more than anything else. And that's what I try to do is stay alive. I try to minimize absolutely the number of words used in it so that the, the art could tell the story. I did a good job with that. I really like it. Um, the style of art too, uh, what Baskerville, Baskerville does. Um, is this something that you and your partner want to maybe try to sell and pitch for a film? Yeah, we're, we're working on that. So, well, I, I would, <laughs> I'd watch that. Is there any other projects that you can discuss? Not at the moment, no. Okay. They, they are worth discussing. Yeah, no. Sorry. Um, oh, not a big deal. I mean, I've, I've definitely got other projects that I've completed or are working on, but right now I'm working on trying to get a film version of Stay Alive going. That's my that and marketing Stay Alive are my two primary foci right now. How did um? And I do apologize if I asked this earlier or you mentioned it earlier. But I don't think that we got too much into detail about uh, how you and Marcosia kind of hooked up. What was that process like? Because they're they're a big publisher, aren't they? Yeah, I solicited them, and the publisher, the owner, Harry Marcos, got back to me really quickly and said, "I'm in." It was like, "Wow," you know. And you know, it was we went from there and. Um, we had to adapt it a little bit to their format because the format of the graphic novel is slightly smaller than the typical American graphic novel or comic book format in terms of dimensions. And then, you know, otherwise it was, it was not that difficult and, you know, we got it up and running. So it's on Comixology now. It just, it just debuted on Comixology last week, which is, you know, you're probably familiar with it. It's the, I think it's the biggest retail comic 
uh, forum in the world now. It's uh, it's all online and it's owned by Amazon. It was started by I don't know who started it a few years ago, but Amazon acquired it and it allows you to read comic books and to focus on individual panels. It's quite unique and interesting. So. Unlike a lot of my peers, I'm not big into comics. I do. I am, though, starting to get into horror comics. I just, I never really knew, it sounds really dumb, but I never knew that, besides DC Comics, I never knew or thought about horror comics as being a thing. Because um, I was big into horror films. I didn't start really reading uh, until after high school, before and at high school, just killed me my interest in reading. I think it was due to the uh, the the curriculum trying to force me to read books. And one book in particular, All Quiet on the Western Front. I love history, but that book sucked in my opinion. It bored the shit out of me. Maybe not now if I read it, but but the uh, teenage version of me absolutely hated it. And uh, it just kind of all, all the books I was forced to read kind of killed my interest for for years until I met my wife who got me a Kindle and got me back into reading. And um, I just never got into comics, but I well, I, I would like to go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I, well, I was gonna say I would like to hear that name uh, one more time so I can write it down. Oh, Comicsology, and it's all lowercase except for the X in the middle. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry about cutting you off. What were you going to say? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the best way to get teenagers not to read is to force them to try and read. Right. And I, I think Kurt Vonnegut would, you know, he probably found it deeply ironic that that Slaughterhouse-Five became a staple of high school reading, a <laughs> compulsory reading, because it's it's a book about the the horrors of, of uh, you know, military regimentation and following orders and doing terrible things in the name of, you know, following orders. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, even if I love something, if somebody's trying to force it down my throat, I don't love it anymore. So, yeah, I agree. You know what the weird part was, though, is back then, even though I hated, I just flat out hated reading, I still wrote all the time. I've done it for as long as I can remember. Um, and it was really focused on horror and there was comedy mixed into it, which I've always loved. Uh, one of my favorite story movies is, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Big fan right. of that. It, Absolutely. It, it mixes the two genres perfectly. Yes. No, that's a great film. It, it, it's really, yeah, I think my preference is for horror and comedy together because horror just qua horror for me, is too much. I mean, the world is horrific enough. Horror, properly conceived, is an escape. And there are some horror films that are truly horrifying that aren't that funny. Like I said, Halloween 2. But at the yeah, same that's not funny. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, things like torture porn, I mean, I, 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 can, underst I can appreciate the novelty and the, the skill with which some of those, some films or, or stories are Films are made or stories are told, but I think ultimately my two favorite horror films are Return of the Living Dead from 1985 and Reanimator from oh, 1985. Yes. And those films are comedies as much as they are horror films. Yeah. Return yeah. of the Living Dead is hilarious. It's a great film. Yeah. And they can get away with a lot more crazy stuff yep. because 
they have a comedic edge, you know. If if you're not leavening your horror with comedy, I think that you're limiting yourself somewhat because people, I don't think people emotionally can deal with too much of any one emotion. It's just over overpowering after a while. You know, it's sort of like going to an art museum and trying to look at all the paintings in one afternoon. You know, you just, you start to lose something. And it's like sensory overload. Absolutely. you have to you have to give people an experience that is at least somewhat reminiscent of reality. And reality is always a blend of drama, horror, comedy, romance, whatever. You know, and you may be emphasizing one aspect of reality over another, but if you completely ignore the other aspects, I think you start to lose something in your ability to tell a story. Yeah, it's really good to blend the two, horror and comedy in particular, because if you have a moment where it's super serious everything's going crazy and then you kind of even if it's like black comedy where it's just like kind of not for everyone but it's still something where you can breathe because if it's if you got a novel that's just straight up dark i mean it does work for some books but me personally like you um i want a little room to breathe that way when the horror comes back it's going to affect me all the more yeah and that's about to say i mean one of the greatest horror comedies I've ever encountered, even though I don't think it was written as a horror comedy, is The Trial by Franz Kafka. And mm. I, I couldn't read more than 15 pages of that book without feeling claustrophobic. That's how powerful it is. But at the same time, there's this level of absurdity to what's going on that, that makes it funny. You know, not laugh out loud funny, but it's just, you know, there's this, you know, under, you know, there's a sense undergirding everything that, you know, even though what's happening to to the protagonist is terrible, it's it's also absurd and therefore, you know, funny or at least amusing in a way. And it right. makes the, the the suffocating nature of the of the narrative more tolerable. Yeah, um, th- that's a good observation. Um, I don't think you can really have a good story without those components. Maybe you could, but I don't know. I'm trying to think about it, and it seems a little unrealistic, which takes me out of the story. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are stories that are well told that, you know, don't necessarily have much leavening, you know, that are just focused on one emotional state of being. But it's, it's hard to pull off, and I'm thinking of... Uh, Frederick Forsyth's Day of the Jackal. It's one of my favorite novels, and it's about a, it's about the an attempt on the the life of the French premier and the French government's attempt to stop the assassin. And it's one of my favorite novels because it absolutely gets you and it doesn't let go. And you just have to read it. You read it compulsively because you want to see what happens. And it is so in the moment that that you know you're just thinking about what what's going to happen next. That sort of thing capitalizes on a, a not quite, I wouldn't say monochromatic experience, but something that is very highly attuned to one particular you know, state of mind. And it does so very well. And so there are some stories that, that are best told that way. But I think by and large, in horror at least, you know, you have to at least, you have to allow people to breathe every once in a while. It's like there are rhythms in stories, right? Mm-hmm. There are ups and downs. You have to give people a breather 
um, or else you're just going to exhaust them, and or you're never going to develop the character sufficiently to get people invested in them. And uh, it's like we kind of said, it's unrealistic to just have one emotion because people are full of everything. Um, if it's two-dimensional, I'm not really interested in reading about it. If it's someone, Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, he, he nails it. Like there's, do you watch uh, that? Did you watch that show or read the books? No, I did not. I'm actually not a big fantasy person. I'm not. I'm not huge into it. I love Tolkien. I love C.S. Lewis. If it's done right, I'll I'll probably watch or read it. But um, I watched the show. I have not read the books yet, and uh, it was a show that me and my wife really enjoyed. And there was this one character, Jamie Lannister, who pushes. Um, and I don't know if it's really a spoiler at this point. The book's been out since the 90s, so I feel okay with saying this part. Uh, he pushes a kid out the window, and the kid survives, becomes crippled. But you're going to not like that guy. He's a very easy guy to dislike. And throughout the TV, throughout the TV show, he goes through crazy shit. Like his hand gets cut off, and they hang it around his neck. Um, and at, at one point I just stopped and I go to my wife, I'm like, why am I rooting for this guy now? He, he tried killing a kid by pushing him out a window and he becomes a like, he's just, it's fucked up, but he becomes likable. Cause if you have empathy for a character, then, uh, you're going to really root for them. And the only way to do that is by kind of making it a 3d character where he's battling himself. Well, who's your or herself. You've seen Silence of the Lambs, right? It's my favorite, one of my favorite books, and I do really like the movie. Who's your favorite character? <laughs> it's, it's Anthony Hopkins' portrayal yeah. of Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah. Of course. He's more interesting than Buffalo Bill. Uh, He's but, more interesting than all the other characters put together. And yeah. The last um, he went, notwithstanding how terrible he is, you don't want to see, you don't want to see him die. No, and I really do wish that they uh, that prequel book. I don't know if you ever read Hannibal Rising. Um, yes, I did. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but it just didn't work for me. I I personally love Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon, and I was a big fan of Hannibal. The ending, it's fine. Yeah, me too. It's, I just yeah, I but wish that scene in the movie. I mean, it's very different from the book, but the scene at the end, the epilogue of Hannibal. The yeah. movie when yeah, yeah. he's sitting on the plane and he offers the little boy the the brain matter, you know he's like the the little boy is just like him he's a gourmand and he says I didn't like the you know what they offered us for dinner and he says nor should you it's not even food as I understand the term right <laughs> and then he he said what's that that's oh that's very good it's like you know well as my mother said to me and your mother probably said to you it's always it's always good to try new things you know I mean, yeah. of course. It's just horrifying, but how can you not love that at the same time? No, it's horrifyingly interesting. And in the book, I thought it was kind of better portrayed because the mom in that, the same little boy, gets pissed off and questions, what the fuck are you giving my kid? I don't even know you. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the part of Hannibal's life I wish they wrote, that Thomas Harris wrote a book about, was during his killing spree when he you know, killed a student or students from Princeton. And when he went through this whole thing as a doctor 
and they showed little piece of that in Red Dragon. I, I just wish that if he came back to that character, that's going to be the one. That's going to be the timeline that he uses, I would hope. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Hannibal Lecter is terrible. He kills some people just because it's convenient to do so. It's yeah. not like it's not like everyone he, he kills and eats is the free-range rude that Barney describes in Hannibal, right? Mm. And, and and that makes his character far less palatable and likable, you know? Right. And, but at the same time, your experience, at least with the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter, is how can you not like this guy? If anything, he's kind of like, uh, he gets to say all the things people want to say but don't, right? Right, yeah. Now, it's like the fool in the Shakespeare play. You know, sometimes uh-huh. one of the most interesting things you can do as a writer is to put interesting comments or observations that would otherwise be radioactive into the into the characters that people don't like and it creates conflict because you don't like this character but you can't help but agree with them yeah that's a good point and you know what else makes um just one more point about the Hannibal Lecter series I find it fascinating and maybe it's changed because he came out with a new book last year um I haven't looked since before then or after then. There's you're not going to find any interviews by Thomas Harris. There's nothing. There's no documentary documentaries. There's no videos of him. There's no text interviews of him because since forever he's kind of refused to have any media interaction. And and I think that kind of not knowing anything about him uh, kind of adds to the whole uh, attraction. Yeah, well, it's like uh, J.D. Salinger, who famously shunned the press. Um, yeah, it, it adds, it. you know, he would rather have his work speak for itself, and there's something to be said for that. So. I don't know if I would do that personally, because, I mean, I, I made my own podcast for a reason. I like to talk and talk yeah. to people. Well, he can get away with it because people want to read and buy his books. Yeah. But if he did, I, I wonder if he would do that I, I just don't know if he could afford to do that if he wasn't as, you know, if he didn't sell as many books as he sold. So he's only he got six books. Right. Well, that's all he needs, right? I mean, <laughs> I, as far as I'm concerned, he's one of, the, one of the greatest crime novelists who ever lived. So, I mean, right. Raymond Chandler had five novels, and he's one of the greatest writers who ever lived, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, it's hard to argue. Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon, in particular, are just like the quintessential dark horror crime, whatever you want to call it. They're, they're like the books. I don't read books a second time normally. Cause there's so many good ones that I need to read at least once, but I'm pretty sure red dragon and, uh, just a whole trilogy. I'm pretty sure I'd read that again down the line. Oh yeah. Um, so I just wanted to ask you one more thing about, uh, what you want to write, uh, if there's anything in particular that graphic novel-wise or a novel or a screenplay, is there anything in particular that you want to tackle? Well, I've got a lot of projects that I've completed that I'd like to see the light of day, potentially. Um, I'm trying to... I actually have written a... I read a screenplay that I'd like to see... I'm, I'd like to see developed uh, called Cat Problem. And the premise is that there's this small or medium-sized town in Colorado that has a large 
feral cat population, and it's it's kind of the calling card of the community. It's a, it's an attraction. There are like twenty thousand feral cats that live around the town, and holy shit. I was thinking about in I think in Istanbul there are lots of cats that are semi-domesticated. I calling them feral is maybe too much. They're semi-domesticated. People take care of them on a community basis, and they just live outside and maybe go in when it's cold. But you know. They're, they're welcome members of the community. And hmm. I'm thinking, what would happen if some government contractor decided to try and weaponize them? <laughs> and so the premise is this government contractor weaponizes a form of the rabies virus, makes it applicable only to cats, and tests it by unleashing infected cats on the local population of of wild cats so the whole cat population of the town becomes rabid and attacks the town and they test to see what what happens when a town is attacked by their new weapon so it's kind of it kind of have an effect like the crazies that film the crazies except the crazies are the cats no it's not cats but uh no, what I mean is in my in my story the crazies are the cats not the people so oh but you're right. It's just it's like that. And so the story is about this cheerleader who is caught up in the middle of this. And with the help of one of her friends and the shop teacher in her high school, who's actually a war vet who teaches people right out of the anarchist handbook how to survive instead of teaching them how to build, you know, household tchotchkes. Um, they, they go and they try to rescue her crush her high school crush from the hospital in the, in the middle of the siege. So I'd watch that. Well, thank you. Yeah. That so that's awesome. That's, that's the next project I'd like to try and get developed. So, well, uh, if you want keep in touch about that, cause I would be very interested in that is, um, is there any other things that you would like to discuss or let people know about stay alive in particular? Or any other projects of the past that you've worked on? Um, now, why do why don't we just keep this focused on stay alive? Sure. So, just for the time, you know. I mean, I, I've I've got a podcast. I actually did a podcast story that was um, people might like if they like stay alive, they'll like this. It's called uh, Making Things Click, and it it's on the Scary Story Podcast, part of the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Podcast Network. And it's about a uh, it's about a teenager who is posts a story or posts a video of himself apparently taking revenge on his high school bully, and his he sets an example. He creates a viral phenomenon of people doing terrible things to people that bedevil or oppress them, and causes a nationwide epidemic of violence, of vigilante violence. So. Hmm. And it's it's available at simply scary podcast website. Is that so? That's a is that a connection to the uh, to the children's horror story uh, books? Uh, children's. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. No. Story. Oh, I, you know, I think I'm mixing it up with scary stories in the dark. Now, yeah, there, there's a podcast network. The guy who runs it is named Craig Groshek, and it's called. Um, I think it's um, Chilling Tales that. It's Chilling Tales, I think is the name of the LLC, but Chilling Tales for Dark Nights is the the primary brand, and Simply Scary is another brand. And, and I 
wrote a story that was dramatized in 2018 called Making Things Click, and that's what I'm talking about. The uh, okay. I, I I'm interested in mob violence because it, it terrifies me, frankly. It's like the uh, comment, I think it's Madison in The Federalist who said that even if every Athenian citizen had been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. You think about Socrates as one of the most brilliant and humane people who ever lived, and you know, but if you get enough of them together, this herd mob mentality takes over and they start doing terrible things. You know. Yeah, it's a scary thing. It's real and we see it every day. Yes. Um when my when my wife was pregnant with our boy, he uh she was in some mommy Facebook groups and she would tell me about him, and uh, you would think that a bunch of women that are pregnant would be able to sympathize with each other, and it's just—it's nothing like that with some people. No, I, I think that people are capable of terrible things and wonderful things, and it's, it's a constant struggle to sort of choose the good over the bad. Absolutely. That's, um, that's tradition. Yeah. So besides everything we cover for Stay Alive, is there anything else that you can talk about or tell us where people can uh, buy Stay Alive? Stay Alive is available at, online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Comixology and Kindle on, also on Amazon. And uh, if you go to the Marcosia website, you can find the various distributors for it. It's, it's, it's available throughout the world. Um, other booksellers and uh i certain comic shops i think at least i know of at least one comic shop that's carrying it that's uh forbidden planet in manhattan um but given the coronavirus quarantining your your best bet is probably to you know at this point is to order it online yeah i would think so especially manhattan that's a super crowded what is it like three million people live in that city it's not a danger yourself just to go get a physical copy. You just, you know, order it online. So so by the time this episode airs, it'll be uh, sometime in June. Um, okay. Hopefully uh, it'll be more resolved then. I hope so. It's, it's hope really so. scary, you know. Yeah. Like it's, I, the real world is a lot scarier than most of anything you would read in a horror book. So... Yeah, when I when I read Stay Alive, I just I honestly laughed a lot because it was just so over the top, and I knew that I I'm glad that we talked about this because everything that I kind of thought was what you were going for was confirmed with you basically telling me that's why I wrote it. So it, it's funny to me. Parts are funny, some are brutal. I think it's a good book, uh, good graphic novel. Um, it's worth reading, and it's a good reflection on modern society. Um, I would buy it. I think it's worth your time. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> and where can people follow you? On Twitter, let me double-check and make sure. It's uh, it's at Novel Stay, capital N and capital S. So at capital N-O-V-E-L, capital S-T-A-Y. And on Instagram, stay alive, G-N. Just one word. Stay alive, G. What was that? Stay alive, what? G N, all lowercase. G N. Okay. Uh, I wasn't aware of the Instagram. Um, that's actually all the questions I had there, Jim. I, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? 
I, I thank you very much for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I had a great time talking to you. And um, any projects you have in the future, or if you just want to get together and chat again, let me know, because I enjoyed this, and I hope that this actually gets you guys some more sales. That'd be great, and I would love to know. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Um, it was great Thank talking you. to you, Jim, and I hope you have a good day. You too. Thank you. All right. See ya. Bye, everybody. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. As far as rules go, we want you to know that uh, we are looking at a maximum word count of 4,000 words, and we're mostly interested in standalone prose fiction stories. So no TV, movie, play script treatments, or novel and novella extracts. Fuck. It's going to take us all night to record three minutes of advertisement, and that's That's Hollywood. That's Hollywood, baby. So I would say, you know... For more information, go to deadheadreviews.com slash I fucking forget. We want you to note that we are interested in standalone prose fiction stories. No television, movie, or play script treatments, or no... Nope. Try that again. Nope. Too long. Take <laughs> two. September 15th to the 30th. Hope to see you there. Hope to I see you there. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I, I wish we could put the face you made as part of the end, end of that. <laughs> I don't I guess. <laughs>